Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 10th of August, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Gone News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to have David Scott with us, reporting, of course, from Scotland with Northern Exposure. They're after the children, Mike. Uh, so it seems. So we're going to start off with uh, Anne Longfield, who's uh, the Children's Commissioner for England. Now, yesterday, uh, she was uh, saying that on, t on television that uh, we need regular testing of pupils and teachers when they go back to school, regardless of whether they have COVID-19, which is essential for keeping schools safe. Um, so this is uh, a, re a repeat of some comments that she made in a report that was released last Wednesday. Um, and uh, as it's absolutely clear, she's demanding uh, routine testing for uh, pupils and teachers. She went on to say uh, this will be particularly important in the 2020-2021 winter flu season when clusters of flu, Brian, could be mistaken for a COVID-19 well, outbreak. Remarkable that she knows that because that just happens to be the subject of that uh, excellent document, which we will cover more on in due course. But uh, talking about the winter of 2020-21, where uh, it suggested that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, of course, the argument is uh, whether, whether uh, children are going to go back to school full time and, and uh, with no restrictions. Um, and, uh, but Nick Gibb, the schools minister, said anybody that shows symptoms in schools, teachers and pupils will be tested. Not routine testing without symptoms is what he had to say. Uh, and then Gavin Williamson also weighed into the discussion, the latest research, which is expected to be published later this year, makes it clear there's little evidence that the, that the virus is transmitted at school. So the government trying apparently to sort of backtrack on this a little bit. Uh, now he's referring to a report which has apparently been done by Public Health England, uh, which is looking at uh, transmission rates amongst uh, 20,000 pupils and teachers in 100 schools across England at the end of the summer term. But I'm not clear, Brian, why that can't be released, why it's taking months. Uh, for that to come out, why it needs to be later in the year? Well, my, my opinion is that the uh, British government at the moment lie on a daily basis and because they are lying and falsifying statistics and deceiving the public, they've got to be very careful with every document because that could be the one that un unlocks Pandora's box of their of their dirty deeds. Uh, so absolutely. I think it's fear. I think it's fear. Uh, absolutely. Now, David, uh, coming back to the Children's Commissioner report, uh, this was released, well, actually, this particular uh, statement from the Children's Commissioner released in March 2020 uh, describing uh, the Act. Which Act are they talking about uh, introducing new powers to detain children on public health grounds? Yes, this is a Coronavirus Act, and uh, they're raising concerns, and this, the concerns they're raising seem valid indeed. Under the subject um, detaining children on public health grounds, uh, they write, the Act also introduces new powers to detain children on public health grounds for a period of up to 14 days. I agree this may be necessary in order to prevent the further spread of disease. However, I'm concerned that the Act allows this to be done without consent from, from someone who is responsible for the child. And only requires reasonable steps to be taken to inform someone with responsibility of the detention. I'd like to see protections for children in these circumstances strengthened, with timescales in place for those with responsibility to be informed about the child's detention. I would also like data to be made available to me in all instances where the child is detained using these powers. So they're ringing quite rightly alarm bells that the government has taken as part of the COVID Act uh, the right to seize your child. I know me to try and tell you about it uh, if uh, wise overlords deem this as the right and proper action. 
Uh, well, David, we mentioned this more recently with respect to the guidance for public health officers, which was released by the Department for Health and Social Care and Public Health England a couple of weeks ago. And it says public health officers may direct, remove or request the constable to remove an individual to a place suitable for screening uh, and assessment. Uh, and uh, 3.9E says, uh, where the, will the person be taken for screening and assessment? This facility uh, must be suitable for screening and assessment. This could be an isolation facility, an NHS facility, or any other agreed facility, as long as it's suitable for screening and assessment. And they go on to say in 6.2, you may only exercise your powers on a child in the presence of A, an individual who has responsibility for the child, or B, if no such adult is present, an adult that you consider to be appropriate, having regards to the views of the child. So the question is, would that be a teacher? Would that be the principal of a school? Would it be, who would it be? Well, well could be a social worker that's popped up into social this. Worker. This is so dangerous, uh, absolutely. so dangerous. Uh, absolutely, and it goes on to say, individuals should always be given the opportunity to comply voluntarily with public health advice. Uh, but it, it's only at the stage where individuals do not comply with such advice that we would look to impose measures under Schedule 21, uh, Parts 1 and 2. Um, so this is really pretty draconian. Uh, the Children's Commissioner apparently attempting to raise questions about it, but on the other hand is also demanding uh, that the mechanism that would uh, perhaps allow this to happen in the first place, that that mechanism becomes uh, mandatory. David? Which this I'm is... Yeah. Yeah, I mean... The, 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 the... Can we, can, can we find someone in government who understands the meaning of the word voluntary? This whole idea, it's, we, we prefer you to, to um, uh, you know, have a, a voluntary uh, consent, but if, if it's not coming forward, we will coerce it and we will force it. That is not voluntary. That is not voluntary. Voluntary consent means express voluntary individual informed consent. We don't have any of these things. We certainly don't have voluntary. If you're being threatened with the strong arm of the law, it is not voluntary. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, uh, moving on to, to lockdowns and local lockdowns. Uh, here we've got uh, Sky News uh, from Friday saying that Preston is the latest UK city to uh, see lockdown tightened after increase in infection rate. Um, no discussion, by the way, of increase in hospitalisation rate or increase in the death rate. It's just the number of cases, as we've been highlighting quite a lot in the last couple of weeks. Uh, here we've got uh, the Telegraph this morning saying risk of local lockdowns are COVID-19 cases in your area rising or falling. So we're really getting into the local lockdown uh, scenario now. Hearts Live, Hearts Live here. The 29 towns and cities in the UK's coronavirus local lockdown watch list, including Luton and Bedford. Uh, so this uh, rhetoric about local lockdowns is building. Uh, but uh, what we missed at the time, and thanks for the person who sent us this, uh, this research paper from Spy B, uh, entitled Public Disorder and Public Health, Contemporary Threats and Risks. Now, this was uh, published on the 31st of July, uh, but was actually written and distributed, I guess, to government on the 2nd of July. So the government has had this since the beginning of July. Now, let's just run through this uh, a little bit. Uh, what it says is, in the next few weeks and months, the UK will face grave challenges to public order. The situation is volatile and highly complex. It says, while widespread urban disorder is not inevitable currently, the situation in the UK is precariously balanced and the smallest error in policing or policy 
uh, could unleash a dynamic which will make the management of COVID-19 all but impossible. Uh, government should take account of intelligence on community tensions and other factors that will be that may be inflamed by the extension or imposition of local lockdowns. Uh, and it goes on to say public health measures are never simply scientific decisions and the consequences in terms of public order and ultimately for public health could be serious if lockdown impositions uh, imposition is ill-judged. Uh, and they, they highlight a number of examples of where it, there may be problems and they mention aid as a, as a perfect example. Now, uh, on the, uh, the UK column news on the 31st of July, uh, we highlighted or we made the point uh, that, of course, uh, um, Matt Hancock had imposed a local lockdown in uh, Greater Manchester, parts of West Yorkshire and East Lancashire, affecting many people who were celebrating Eid at the time. Um, and so it looks like uh, the government has been given some kind of warning, David, that uh, uh, imposing local lockdowns in this way um, is, has the potential to kick off serious civil unrest. Uh, but it's almost like they're looking forward to that. Well, they, have, they been, have they been given a warning? I read this document and uh, it, was, it, was, it was vague in the extreme. It was like a summary for the stupid of what had been in the press for the previous three weeks. I mean, it didn't read like a briefing document. There was no insight. There was no policy. There was no framework of theory of, of a coherent understanding of the situation. It was just, here's the thing, here's the thing. And it just went on and on and on. And, and well, you know, the, the, the COVID uh, response might be unfair and uh, BAME people might, might you know, be unhappy about the number of times they're being stopped. And we're finding more, more black people per, per 100,000 than white people because of non-compliance with COVID regulations. And well, we have to worry about the extreme right and we have to worry about, um, you know, Eden. It just went on and on and on. There wasn't really advice. It read like a bunch of officials trying to write something so that whatever happens, they can turn around and say, well, we warned you. So it's not down to us. It, it just seemed an abdication of, response, of the responsibility to think about their actions. It was very disappointing. Any thoughts? Well, lot, lots of thoughts. So I wait till I talk to talk about the BBC in a minute. Oh, okay, okay. Well, let's uh, <laughs> uh, well let's move on. Well, if we're worried about local lockdowns, well, it gets even more local because we're going to be locking down uh, individuals uh, on the basis of what they are. Uh, so the Telegraph this morning reporting that obese people in coronavirus hotspots will be told to stay in board, uh, indoors to combat the second wave. Uh, David, uh, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about this one. Uh, what is the definition? Well, this is this is one thing. Is it BMI? Because that doesn't really work too much. But never mind. Also, it does remind me of the film about the zombie apocalypse, where the fatties went first. Um, you know, I'm just wondering if someone's actually just playing this one for last now. Well, well I'm going to say they're not, David. <laughs> Everything that's being done at the moment is very carefully calculated by the government, and they know exactly what they're doing. So. Uh, earlier this morning, I was saying to somebody that uh, when you hear people describing what is happening in this country as stupid or ridiculous, this is a very big mistake because none of it's stupid or ridiculous. It's been very carefully calculated for the result. 
Now, uh, over the weekend, uh, there were various anti-lockdown protests around uh, about the country. Uh, Pierce Corbyn was in Bristol, um, and uh, the Bristol Live was pretty much the only mainstream newspaper that I could see that covered this in any in any particular way. And pr perhaps we could add to that, Mike, that Tony Gosling, of course, who was operating a, on a local FM channel until very recently, he's been silenced because... Uh, they don't like him talking out on alternative subjects in in Bristol. So, uh, okay. So, uh, so Bristol Live uh, covered uh, his, but it, according to them, it was uh, just a few people uh, at that one. Um, and but uh, Liverpool seems to have been uh, very much uh, a key uh, protest, and uh, quite a number of people out there. NHS workers slam scaremongering as a pandemic as pandemic deniers uh, fill Liverpool street. Uh, so. Where anybody that is uh, questioning the narrative, um, they, they become pandemic deniers. So a reasonable number of people out there. But nonetheless, uh, these protests going on right across the country. Now, there was... Sorry, my clever headline, isn't it, that you use the NHS, the brand of the NHS, to attack the people who are on the streets. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, there was uh, a fantastic uh, little presentation uh, from... Uh, a young woman at the uh, at the event so let's just have a listen to a little bit of what she said number one mind space from the institute for government it's a document that was created in 2010 by the british gov which discusses how mind control is used to influence the change of behavior in society that's mind space and I strongly encourage you all to read that document and to understand why our futures are at such stake. I'd also strongly encourage the following to be looked into. UK Column News. Dr. Rashid A. Buttar. So that's just a little uh, clip from a speech given by Laura Jane. And thank you very much for the shout out, Laura Jane. Um, well, what's brilliant about that, Mike, is that she's giving the public the real document. She's not just talk, talking and giving some story. She's saying, go and look at that government mind space document where the government in 2000. Uh, 2010 was boasting that it could change the way we think and behave by using applied psychology, and that's what's going on. Yes, David, uh, what were your thoughts? Well, I was enjoying the applied psychologist, the psychology of the pandemic denier label, and I've also seen anti anti maskers, not anti vaxxers, anti maskers being being uh, referred to. So this is the same the same scenario that has been tried before to silence debate. Um, and it's, this is the reason where the reason why people, once they once they understand how this works, uh, start to question a whole lot of things because it's the same argument that's used over and over again. You can't question that because because questioning that is wrong and evil. Don't dare think for yourself. And once you once you escape that and you say no, actually I'm okay thinking for myself. Now I have some questions, and you have a, you have a responsibility to answer. You know, when do we start? Once you get to that point, you become dangerous to the state.
Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, this is the uh, website for the organization that's running this. Hashtag Save Our Rights, if you want to find them on social media. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, obviously, they need support. Now, there perhaps weren't as many people at some of the protests and demonstrations as they might have liked. Uh, but so where were the, the general public? Well, they were all on the beach. Uh, and here is the mirror. Travel chaos as cars turned away from heaving beaches on another scorching day. Uh, here's the independent UK heatwave chaos as beaches on beaches as Britain swarm coastlines and cause two mile traffic jams. And Brian, what occurred to me was, uh, well, this is in fact a form of protest here because uh, everybody on these beaches, well, they're pretty much ignoring all the social distancing uh, argument. They're certainly not wearing masks. They're getting on with their lives. Uh, and yeah. so while they're not out in the, in the city centres with placards, they are certainly um, making their own statement. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mike was very nice. Obviously, we're down here in prime holiday territory in Plymouth and, and close to Cornwall, etc. So a lot of people down here to the beaches, you could tell with the traffic on the roads that it was like people just desperate to be let out of their boxes. And yeah, I think the people who've gone to the beach are going to go there because they are realising that something nasty is going on and they wanted to get away for it. Uh, from it. But, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. David, I was just going to say, uh, maybe maybe the uh, protest groups uh, should be considering moving from the centre of cities to the beaches, because that's where the people are, perhaps where their audience is. Well, I, yes, or I suppose you could, you could really argue that um, going to the seaside is a form of protest now, because anything that's normal is a form of protest. Going into a shop without a mask on, smiling at a shop assistant and talking to them as a, as a normal human being is becoming a form of protest. Anything that's normal is good. Uh, but uh, the, the people who are actually standing up and exposing how it's done and the documents, they're especially good. So thank uh, you very absolutely. much for all of those. Absolutely. Uh, okay, Brian. Well, let's follow on with the beaches. And of course, the BBC headline is coronavirus, how to stay cool in a face mask. There's hot UK weather forecast. Now, um, David mentioned or used a phrase just now, summary for the stupid. I, I think we've got £4.3 billion worth of organisation, which is one summary for the stupid. This um, article by the BBC is just extraordinary. Let's have a look at uh, what was said. Well, it was going to be sweltering. That was the uh, start of it. You've got to choose the right mask. Uh, you've got to change what you put on your skin and is a visor advisory. Above all, stay hydrated. So I've just taken the key headlines in that article. But if we get into it, we'll see why this article um, just so unbelievably dangerous and devious in what it's doing. So this is the journalist, Francesca Gillette or Gillette. Um, she's journalist at BBC News UK online and let's have a look at what she had to say. So um, it said you should choose a mask of breathable material, cotton or bamboo. There's a bit of a clue in that, isn't there? Because that word breathable is there, but that's what you should do. Avoid surgical masks, they aren't that breathable and they're not the best at keeping cool. Consider a mask that is lighter in colour. So you might want to get some colour coordinated mask. But there is the word breathable appearing there. But this is all fairly loosely put together. So on it goes. Um, don't put your mask in the freezer because you might suffer from cold burns. 
but you might try putting a towel in the freezer. Okay, so a little bit of a, um, well, I don't know what we describe it as there. You can't put your mask in the freezer because you could burn your face, but you could put a towel in the freezer and not burn your face. Use sun cream and a water-based moisturizer. Uh, remove the whole visor contraction and mop your brow, <clears throat> okay? So people in shops wearing visors, but according to the BBC, no, you don't need those. So fine, happy with that. And there we are, take water as a covered mouth may increase the danger of dehydration. Choose a cooler time of day and wear a hat. Uh, consider taking a battery powered fan. Now, David, I've got more, but this is, this is talking to a child who's not very bright on a subject that you don't really know anything about yourself. This is incredible, right? You know, we, we have experienced hot weather before. A breathable mask, really, really, a, a mask that lets air go through, right? Why, why are we doing this? What's the risk? Why are we doing it? We're outside, there is, there is no risk. There's no one's dying, everything's fine. Can, why don't we stop? Why can't they, why, why can't they ask that question? Why can they, they not look at the huge amounts of scientific data? We've all read the papers that say masks, major health concerns with these, they restrict your breathing. They're gonna cause problems. They're gonna cause problems for a lot of people. Um, if you then put the stress of high temperatures on top of that, and maybe strenuous activity if you're out in the outdoors, um, that's, that's magnifying the risk. We're not talking about risk. Why are we not talking about risk? Why can't we not get an answer from anyone in any government that says what the medical risk assessment is for this? Well, David... Why, why is the BBC not asking any questions? Uh, well, I'm going to say because many of the journalists in the BBC are simply not bright enough to know the questions that they should be asking. But of course, the BBC is a propaganda arm of the British government and the British government wants the public to wear masks. Uh, because if they can control people during summer day to wear a mask on some occasions, but not on the other, you can control people uh, to do anything the government wants, exactly as uh, that uh, lady Laura Jane was saying with the Mindspace document. But the end of the article, it got more interested because they brought in the might of the Johns Hopkins uh, University in America. And let's have a look what was said. So this is the first bit. Johns Hopkins University advises anyone who feels lightheaded, dizzy, or is finding it harder to breathe to get out of the heat. Don't take the mask off. Uh, nothing about that, no. Uh, and here we are. How someone will respond to heat stress while wearing a mask depends on a combination of the intensity of the heat, the duration of exposure, and any underlying medical condition. Well, that's uh, perfectly... Uh, Correct, and I know from, from experiments in the armed forces where uh, we were put through uh, conditions of wearing a gas mask in extremely hot conditions, um, you have to be very careful because we had very fit young men passing out as a result of this little exercise. Regardless of the type of mask, don't try to make your face feel cooler by dousing the mask in water. Getting face coverings wet can compromise their filtration capabilities. Well, that's actually correct. But let's go back and look. Light-headed, dizzy, or is finding it harder to breathe. These are classic symptoms of apoxia. You're not getting enough oxygen or hypercapnia. You are taking in too much carbon dioxide because you're trying to breathe it out and the mask stops that. 
So here's John Hopkins recognizing that when people are getting dizzy or finding it harder to breathe, lightheaded, these are symptoms of, of uh, hypoxia and hypercapnia. That is the mask preventing you breathing properly. And of course, that is going to be much worse for older people and worse for anybody in high temperatures. Uh, but look at this one, getting face coverings wet can compromise their filtration capabilities. Well, what's going on here? Because basically um, the water can stop oxygen in and CO2 out to put you unconscious. And I've said here, possibly death. This is a torture technique, putting a cloth over somebody's face and uh, nose and mouth and wetting it. Uh, the Chinese were up to this in the Korean War. Well, so it's a, no, uh, it's a known torture technique. Well, it's called waterboarding, and I think we were doing that in Iraq, weren't we? Well, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. So this is immensely dangerous stuff. The BBC not warning of the dangers of masks on a hot day to people who've got lung conditions and heart conditions or are elderly. They are telling you you should be choosing a better um, sun lotion to put on. This is very dangerous reporting. And we're going to label this, I think, correctly as absolute fake news. And just to show the point that uh, UK Column uh, does what it preaches, uh, we took the opportunity to email the journalist this morning. This is only part of the email that she was sent. Dear Francesca, I was very concerned to read your article, Coronavirus, How to Stay Cool in a Face Mask as hot UK weather forecast. Since it failed to address any of the real medical issues and risks of wearing a face mask, Instead of alerting and advising the public of the real risks, your text distracted the reader into irrelevant and potentially dangerous side issues. Despite many medical articles warning of the adverse effects of masks on breathing, in particular risks of hypoxia and hypocapnia, none of these risks are highlighted in your article, nor have they been reported by the BBC in general. Significantly, the hypoxia and hyper uh, Hypercapnia, sorry, the people missing their risks are exacerbated by hot weather conditions and far more so for elderly people and others with pulmonary and heart conditions. Full close fitting, close weave masks pose a particular risk, more so when the material is thick. You suggest a towel which has been put in the freezer could be used as a mask. This is surely impractical nonsense. Where are the freezers on the beach? Your article skews the reader from the real risks of restricting breathing into diversionary discussion of sunblock and water-based moisture, riser, etc. And I've also pointed out that they used a consultant dermatologist, Dr. Adil Shiraz. Um, but this is an issue about face masks and breathing and oxygen and your heart function. So we've described this as erroneous, misleading and potentially dangerous BBC reporting. And I'll say to our viewers and listeners, if you agree with what we're doing here, then can I suggest politely but firmly you get on to that BBC journalist. Um, sorry, did I understand you to say that the expert that she chose for her article was a dermatologist? Yeah, a skin man. This is because they the article was so clever, Mike, because they skewed it away from the real issue, which is breathing problems and what that is going to do to your lungs and your heart. And they brought it on the fact the sun is out, so you need to make sure the sun cream. So the doctor concerned when you look at his CV, he's a dermatologist, he's a skin man, he's a skin cancer man. Nothing to do with breathing whatsoever. 
Yes. Okay, well, uh, just uh, briefly, uh, an email in this morning uh, from uh, a, a viewer. Thank you very much for this. Hi, Mike. I live in Armagh City Centre, Northern Ireland. Face masks became mandatory today, and being well-placed to observe people going about their shopping this morning, I can only assume that the powers that be are actively encouraging the second wave they're constantly talking about. Uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, we were told, wash your hands, don't touch your face. Uh, well, I've watched people this morning swinging face masks in their hands like a little handbag as they move from shop to shop, putting on and taking off masks as they enter and exit stores. I can only assume that Robin Swan et al. and Stormont uh, have mandated masks to keep case numbers up while awaiting the vaccine and the, and the mask wearers will, be, uh, will stampede to be first in line. Um, this is a, a, a reasonable point, David, of course, is one of the ridiculous aspects of the whole thing is that and you know even just watching uh watching sports people formula one drivers while they stand try to talk to a camera with a mask on and they're constantly having to adjust it and they're touching it on the front uh totally against all the advice the government must understand that of course in proper you know normal day-to-day -day life it's inevitable that people are going to touch their faces more as a result of wearing masks rather than less Absolutely. I, I was out to, um, I was in a, a cafe a few days ago. I was watching a family come in, they were all masked up. The, 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 the girl who would be 16, 17 and um, healthy at no risk. I mean, if you look at the statistics, much more risk of being struck by lightning. She was at no risk. She had a mask on. She was constantly touching and, and adjusting this. It was never out of her hands. Um, it was she was holding it over her, over her mouth, actually holding it on, and then she was touching it. At one point, she was chewing the mask. It, it, you're looking at this, and think this is not healthy. This is no way to live, and this is not going to do anything for public health. Quite the reverse. Uh, indeed. Now, David, uh, you've had a report from a Scottish hospital. Yes, this is. Um, an area we'll be looking into more and we'll try and dig some more into exactly what's happening here. But the report was at the beginning of the lockdown, all senior staff at the hospital in East Kilbride, that's here Myers, were invited to a meeting uh, where they were told anyone 45 or older were to be classified as DNR, that's do not resuscitate. And they were threatened with their jobs if they went public. So what exactly has been going on in our hospitals? What exactly is the policy and what exactly is the level of threat that's being used to keep it secret from the people who, let us remember, all of this is done in the name of and who pay for it all and who are meant to benefit from it all? These are good questions. Yeah, and this is very dangerous stuff because if we're dealing with people's lives and we're dealing with people's life and death and we are lying and threatening people over it, there is something extremely dirty going on. I uh, mentioned it before, but if any of our viewers or listeners haven't come across the Nazi T4 programme, I suggest you do some research because in the early days of the Nazi regime, they started the experiments on severely uh, mentally, physically disabled people uh, in Tiergrasse, which is where the T comes from. And that was expanded until it reached the deaths of about 365,000 people that was all kept secret because even the well the german public would not have stand it, have stood it had they knew mm. so we're not far off here 
Well, have a look at this one. If you don't like the government's uh, line on coronavirus, you can be sure that uh, the internet is going to back up the government line. So this was sent to us this morning. Um, basically, it's a Twitter block. Um, this is off Guardian reporting. Uh, no one has died from the coronavirus. Um, president of the Bulgarian Pathology Association and our viewer was saying, well, if you try and get hold of this, uh, you get blocked through Twitter. So basically challenge the official COVID line and you're censored. And if they're having to uh, censor people, you can be sure that the government is lying over what it's saying at the moment. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, moving on to economic news then. Uh, David, uh, the Labour Market Outlook surveys are out from the CIPD today. This is the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. Uh, and well, let's have a look at, uh, at what they're saying. Uh, first of all, with respect to redundancies, uh, they're saying that uh, the number of employers expecting to make redundancies has gone up from 22% uh, earlier in the year to 33% uh, for the three months to September. Uh, they're also saying that the uh, the direct cost to employ employers in making a redundancy is £11,125. So, first of all, under those circumstances, bearing in mind that uh, lots of people are expecting to make redundancies now, that is a pretty immense cost to already struggling companies, never mind the effect on the individuals themselves who are losing their jobs. It often pushes companies over the edge. In, in fact, the, the state recognises this because uh, they actually guarantee the redundancy payments because often the, often the redundancy payments are the thing that takes a struggling company and puts it uh, out of business uh, because it, it, you, they, they find themselves unable to adjust to the new circumstances quickly enough um, because of the cash flow implica implications for the state mandated redundancy payments. Uh, absolutely, and I think uh, it was only just a few few news programmes ago, a couple of things last week at some point, the government had reiterated this and, and uh, made sure that uh, redundancy payments are guaranteed under the current circumstances. I think we said at the time this is likely to put people uh, over the edge. Uh, but let's, uh, let's move on from that one. Then the next one is labour demand. They're saying overall employment demand is down this quarter compared to spring 2020. Uh, the net employment figure which measures the proportion of employers planning to increase or decrease staffing levels dropped from minus four to minus eight. This is the lowest figure recorded since the survey was conducted using its current methods uh, and is a sharp contrast to the plus 21 recorded in the winter of 2019-2020 report. Um, so that is, uh, that is a huge shift, David. It is, although it, it almost seems like, is, is that all? Because the the figures are not really representing reality yet, because there's still huge bailouts, there's still huge amounts of government support um, being applied to Massanzi's figures to stop the reality of of the COVID lockdown actually becoming obvious to people. Now, at some point, that has to end. Um, how how low will this go, and how long will it last? This, this doesn't look like a V-shaped recovery. Uh, no, it certainly doesn't. And then the final uh, point that they're making is about pay expectations. Uh, well, basically don't expect any kind of pay rise in the private sector. Uh, basic pay expectations were 0.8%, while the public sector, they were 1.7%. Uh, I'll believe that when I see it. I think that many, many companies not in a position uh, to raise salaries at all. Um, right, okay, let's move on then. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org 
forward slash community there are options to help us out there indeed um well is it good news or bad news uh, we reported that uh, newsguard was taking an interest in the uk column we understand that if you go uh, searching for the uk column now you can come across the fact that we've been given have we been given a tick uh, mike what no, have no, we we've, been given? We, we've been given a red shield with an exclamation mark on it oh dear so uh, it would appear that uh, contrary to this uh, slide uh, that we've been branded by newsguard um it was a secret trial, so we don't know who was present in the meeting. We don't know how the decisions about us were made, but we're going to do our best to find out. But if you like what we're doing, we are going to need your support in the future to stand up against a very powerful multi-million dollar government-backed intelligence agencies-backed organisations that say they're there to make sure you know whether you can read something or not. Mm. So we've obviously ruffled a feather or two yes or two. hopefully uh, now just a final quick or a quick reminder here that uh, we will be taking a summer break this year and uh, so the UK column office will be closed from the 17th to the 28th of August which means that uh, this coming Friday is the last uh, UK column news until uh, Monday the 31st of August indeed um, I think uh, we'll appreciate we won't be going to these hot climbs of course because uh, uh, no. we don't have the appropriate uh, uh, immunity passports uh, and uh, anyway there are no no flights yeah. left anyway because the airlines are going out of business so uh, so there we go okay but we would like to say a very big thank you to all of our supporters and people who've donated taken out subscriptions it's clear we're appreciated and that's a huge boost to us so thank you very much for that support absolutely now David uh, heading up to Scotland here well England and Scotland here we've got the registered vote form here uh, and for England, uh, point four says uh, your date of birth. You've got to put your date of birth on the form. Uh, and it says, if you don't know your date of birth, please tick if you are under 18, 18 to 75, age 76 or over. Now, it's normal in England, at least, that you would, uh, perhaps if you were 16 or 17, uh, register to vote on the basis that you'll be 18 by the time the next election comes along. Uh, but it seems that things have changed in Scotland. Oh, they have. Yes, yeah, Scotland, it says, if you don't know uh, your date of birth, uh, please tick 14 to 15, 16 to 17 or 18 and over. So, uh, first of all, thank, thank you to the UK column viewer uh, who, are alert, who alerted us to this. Um, and uh, yes, we're, we're registering people to, to vote in Scotland from 14. Now, th the justification for this is in Scotland, uh, you can vote in uh, Scottish parliamentary elections and in local elections uh, from 16. Two years early does seem very early, but still, that's the official explanation. Uh, you see here Glasgow City Council um, are advertising that you can register to vote from 14 to 17, but this is so you can vote age 16 and on in local authority elections and um, 18 and on in, in, in uh, national elections for, for Westminster. But it does seem very, very young. So it does raise the question, what's really going on here? Because there is, there is obviously the political move towards, towards breaking up the UK. Um, there is a recognition in uh, nationalist circles that uh, the, the school children coming through state mandated, state controlled education uh, are coming out with certain attitudes and those attitudes are um, aligned with the state, in this case, the Scottish state. 
And if you can get as many of those young people to vote, you'll get a result you want. And as they've as they get into into real life and they're longer away from state-run organisations like schools, the, the little creators tend to think for themselves and they develop all sorts of their own opinions and, and you can't control them anymore. And this is not good. And then they get old and they, they don't care anymore and they'll tell you exactly what they think they're thinking. And um, they've got more life experience than the politicians have. And it goes really badly. So you want to catch them young. Um, so I'm just wondering just where the 14-year-old voter registration is really going and whether this is going to be an attempt to uh, manipulate future uh, referenda so that uh, the result that uh, the nation doesn't want uh, can be engineered. Absolutely. Uh, I think it also heads in the direction of uh, where um, adult responsibility is. So um, you, you give 14-year-olds the vote, then 14-year-olds are um, okay to make their own decisions on sexuality issues and uh, who's going to sleep with them. So I think this will be about lowering the age of consent. So this is the Greta effect? Yeah, I think that's what it is. The other thing I think it's worth saying is we're talking about 14, 15, 16 year olds getting the vote, but uh, youngsters that have, for no fault of their own, been involved with uh, social services, social services says it will look after them until they're 25. So where children have been abused within the so-called child care system, when they try and escape that system, even when they get 18, they have still got another seven years of being under the control of the Scottish or the British state. So very, very dangerous things happening here, David. Um, David, what's uh, going on with the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry? Well, I just wanted to highlight some of the protocols they're using here and get your reaction to them. Um, so this is this is what they're saying about when people go to the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry um, and provide information. What then happens to that information? So they say, if you name someone as an abuser uh, at a private session or interview, we will pass the name on to Police Scotland, which seems reasonable. Uh, we will tell the police what you said about the abuse by that person. What you tell us uh, uh, when and where it, about when and where it took place, and the general nature of the abuse you have described. We will do this so that the police can assess the current risk that person may pose to children and or vulnerable adults. It's not for us to assess that risk. They're not saying we're passing it on to the police so they can prosecute. The police are going to assess whether that person is an ongoing risk. Let me give you a scenario. Someone engages in terrible abuse, abusing their power, but then retires and is living comfortably and is elderly. Are they immune? Do they have, do they have some sort of get out of jail free card? It, it seems a very strange way of expressing it. So they go on and say, if, if you tell us that you abuse someone else, your name will be passed to the police. So that's that's uh, a, an attack on people who have been in highly abusive situations like Satanist ritual abuse, where they're often forced to abuse other children. So that's saying we will pass your name to the police. So that's, again, silencing that information. Uh, and it also says, if you tell us anything at a private session which suggests that the life of another person may be at risk, then they're going to take action. Fair enough. Uh, and it goes on. Um, if you tell us you were abused, 
we may have to share your name and allegations with the organizational organization responsible for your care at the time and anyone you named as an abuser. So if you go as a as a person who's a victim of childhood sexual abuse, you go along to the Scottish inquiry and you tell them what happened to you, they're saying that they, they are going to go and tell the abuser what you said. Now, we know of cases where people have started to get death threats and intimidation because of what they said to the inquiry. So is this safe? Is this an inquiry that's there to support the victims of abuse? Or is this an inquiry that's there to close down the questions about child abuse in Scotland? We, we are very concerned about what we're seeing here um, and the lack of any real progress on um, dealing with the problem. Um, David, it strikes, it, me, it strikes me that, uh, well, we're pretty much out of time for that one, but it strikes me that, that this pretty much validates what you were saying about this inquiry from the very beginning. Yes, I, it's, I mean, we were very concerned about so many aspects of this, not least of which was the political um, uh, removal by John Swinney of uh, Susan O'Brien QC, who was running the inquiry. It was a, a group of three and they all resigned and they all resigned. And Susan O'Brien was absolutely explicit in citing political interference from John Swinney as the reason she was forced out. So against that background, there was much concern. But when you see how the rules are now arranged and uh, and the experience of people going into this inquiry, it's uh, it doesn't seem to be there to, to um, enlighten the country. It seems to be there to provide a, a safety valve um, to allow the pressure to be released and uh, information to be kept uh, in controlled. I totally agree with that. And of course, it's fascinating to see how convenient COVID has been because COVID has helped that inquiry disappear into the long grass and the ICSA child abuse inquiry for England and Wales also gone into the long grass. And of course, remember that ICSA denied the key witness from the abuse in Beechwood Children's Home denied that witness the opportunity to speak at the inquiry. So I think it's pretty clear uh, what the aim of the inquiries is, and that is to keep the lid on the whole affair. Mm. Uh, David, moving on to defence, and, and The Telegraph here has an article from Major General Julian Thompson. Uh, the headline is, Our sovereignty and defence matters will mean nothing if we're drawn in by the EU's siren song. Yeah, very good article, this. Um, it, it continues, the EU has made it difficult to dip to dip in and out of its defence systems, participation in one often then requires you sign up to the other. Now, this is this is essentially the analysis that, that David Ellis has been delivering for uh, some years, uh, and it's it's refreshing to see it uh, in in a coming from this source and in the Telegraph. Uh, it, they go on uh, to describe it with more depth. So, buried deep within the Brexit negotiations is an EU siren song. The temptation dangled by the political declaration is for the UK to participate formally in EU defence structures in return for financial benefits to the UK defence industry. That's spot on. That's exactly what's been, been, been uh, suggested. It, it continues, as explained in the recent paper by the Centre for Brexit Policy titled Replacing the Withdrawal Agreement, there is no requirement for the UK to do this. 
uh, we should firm would decline. Continuing these relationships would be a direct infringement of the UK's capacity as a sovereign state uh, with a robust independent strategic defence industry governed by UK rules, decisions and international in and national interest. Agreeing to participate in the schemes put forward in the political declaration would maintain the defence aspects of the EU treaties and allow the EU to impose its policy on UK defence matters. A really timely warning. Uh, and he sums it up here in just a few words. The choice uh, with the EU's siren song is clear, just say no. So th this is very interesting because we're seeing the 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 full David Ellis analysis of this, which is uh, it's you cannot dip in and out. It is a coherent system which will take over. It will use its bureaucratic and economic might to take over and dictate what happens in Britain. To be independent, it means uh, you must be fully independent. And the suggestions that um, just come in and uh, look at all these juicy defence contracts for your industry. Right. This is this is a temptation, but it will not um, result in either uh, a net transfer of money into the UK. The direction will be the opposite, uh, nor will it uh, result in a stronger e uh, UK defence industry. The opposite will be the case as uh, jobs and technology are shipped over to Europe. Um, well, and indeed, perhaps uh, Britain's involvement in EU defence is a sign of. Uh, the sort of foundations of the nation being taken apart. But uh, here's uh, Robin McAlpin. Uh, the foundation of Scotland's democracy have, cr have crumbled uh, and you should worry. Yes, the Robin McAlpin is uh, an interesting character involved in, a, in an organisation called the Common Real, um, talks a lot about economics. Uh, in my view, he's wrong about absolutely everything. Um, but he is trying to provide a coherent intellectual case for independence. Um, and this is not going well. The, the, the SNP's approach is not to tempt that. There is no coherent case. Uh, Robin McAlpine, although I disagree with, with, with how he views things, is trying to create that coherent case and it's getting nowhere. He's now seeing a huge problem across all aspects of, of, uh, of, of democracy and, and governance in Scotland. Um, and uh, he's calling on the people to be vigilant because uh, the, the system is failing. So e even someone from a completely different political position than the one I might uh, adopt is seeing the failure of governance in Scotland uh, quite starkly. Um, and in the meantime, streets being renamed? Well, I thought we'd just cover this little bit of insanity from, uh, from Fife. So we, we have here um, a, a joint uh, effort by Labour and the SNP. Uh, they're auditing. They're, this, is, this is your tax money being well spent. An audit of addresses was prompted with a, by a meeting with Mama Africa, a group of Africans living in Scotland who were alarmed by racially charged events after the death of the black man uh, George Floyd in May. So far, potentially problematic street names in Kirkcaldy, Dunfermline, and Lochgelly have been found and officers are working to pinpoint more. The audit could eventually extend to artefacts and council museums with links to colonialism. So it's not just slavery, it's colonialism, it's an entire history. This is an attack on history, this is an attack on the country, it's an attack on the people, and they will they will never stop. They will never there is nothing that will ever be enough. And to illustrate not stopping, this is one from America. 
um, if you've got a little bit of video here, I think. So today, I'm calling for the abolishment of history classes in Illinois. We're concerned that current school history teachings lead to white privilege and a racist society. I'm calling on the State Board of Education to end the teaching of history and the local school districts to take immediate action by removing the current history books and curriculum practices that unfairly communicate our history until a suitable alternative is developed. So there you have Life is Unfair and we're going to sort this by burning some books and we're going to end history teaching until we develop um, some propaganda that we like and then we're going to put that into the public schools. There is no end to this. It, it goes to uh, an Orwellian future. Uh, David, it goes to an Orwellian future unless we stop it and we have to stop it. Um, just ending very quickly, UK Column News uh, there on Friday. This is what coronavirus will do to our offices and homes uh, where it was clear that uh, uh, the BBC was predicting that we're not going to go back to normality. So I'd just like people to think um, we're told that normal life has gone. Who exactly is it that has the power to steal our future lives and our children's lives? These are people that are in government. Uh, they are making the policy. They're approving the policy if it's coming from charities or think tanks. People are making the decisions which are now destroying our lives and we need to identify them and bring them to account. And I'm just going to uh, end, uh, if I may, with uh, highlighting the David Ellis interviews where he's been talking to um, retired uh, military people. Um, this is where he was interviewing a ex-Special Forces man called Tom. And uh, Tom said, in general, serving in the military was a pleasure, not so much towards the end of my 26 year career as the armed forces were, quote, being destroyed from the inside by the British state, and I didn't realise it. And he went on uh, commenting, um, uh, there's been recently another ex-Special Forces man who said he wants to go to war with the MOD, and Tom said, yes, that's an appropriate uh, comment because people have to realise that we're in a war and the enemy is within and they are the British state. Um, and I think... Uh, David, you've said that the problem we're, we're faced with is a, a government of occupation, a Westminster of occupation. This now seems to be falling in place. Um, we, the public, are being attacked by our own government. We're being uh, kept in our own homes. We're having our children taken away. Uh, this is a cross-party politics. It seems that some form of cult is now running the UK. What do what do we do about this? Well, this is this is this is true, and cults the right word. We see this very much in Scotland, and it's and it's ex expressly um, described in that fashion in Scotland, because it's a little more obvious and a little more in your face. Well, what we do, um, firstly, we never never miss an opportunity for telling the truth. Second, we reach out and we make links with other people who are doing the same thing, um, and thirdly. As these uh, institutions start to betray us, we create something else. You can't beat something with nothing. We have to look to provide alternative means of uh, uh, educating ourselves, educating our children, and um, 
interacting that do, that do not involve uh, going through the estate system, which is becoming increasingly toxic to human thriving. David, thank you very much for that. Uh, perhaps I'd just add that if we have the state saying that we should be socially distant from our, our fellow man and woman, we ought to do the exact opposite. We need to get together. We need to be hugging people. We need to be sticking together uh, because people working together in the right way, easily capable of overcoming this. So we'll end on a positive note there. Thank you very much to our viewers and listeners today. We'll be back uh, on Wednesday, Wednesday for the final before we take a holiday break. David, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye.